Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I am your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have Jita Pai. Jita is the Chief Enterprise Architect for Platform and Architecture at Intuit. Intuit is a finance and accounting software development company serving hundreds of millions of customers worldwide with popular financial products like TurboBox, QuickBooks, Credit Karma, and Mint. And just recently, Intuit paid $12 billion in acquiring MailChimp in order to enable them to build an end-to-end customer growth platform for small and medium businesses. I started the interview by asking Jita about the early days of her career at the Indian Space Research Organization and how she came to pattern India's first parallel computer and image processing system. We share a joke about how the lack of modern cloud computing power meant it was essential for us to fully utilize what we had in the old days. Jida and I discussed the role of the enterprise architecture, especially in the context of data science. We spoke about the importance about thinking about the big picture and building reusable box so that they can be used across the company and multiple products. Jida also shared with me the role of her team plays and how they create enterprise architecture culture with a focus on reusable block that will allow Intuit to continue to building itself as a platform company. What Jita shared those view of the enterprise architecture with me, she gave many examples of how AI, ML models and emerging technology being used and Intuit to solve the problem for their customer. Whether you are technology or non-technology company, as Jida puts it, necessity is the mother of invention, and all of us are going to need software to empower what we do in the business. And whether you are a data scientist or business executive, I highly recommend tuning in to listen to Jida on this episode to understand how enterprise architecture and reusable blocks are equally essential in data science projects. If you have question for Jita or myself, make sure you send us an email or message on LinkedIn. Finally, this episode is sponsored by the new program at DDA. It is an analytic leader mentorship program for senior manager and executive in the business team who want to develop a data-driven business to drive customer experience excellent. For a small one-off NOV, you get to book unlimited strategy session with me for a full year. For more information about this program, please reach out to me via email or, or LinkedIn. Last but not least, make sure you click the subscribe button before the interview starts so you will be the first to be informed on the latest episode on how business leaders run a high-performance organization using data analytics. I am your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. Hello, hello, Gita. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm so excited to finally chatting with you all the way from California. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much, Jason. Good morning. 
<laughs> Good evening for you. It's about seven or eight o'clock in California now, and thank you so much for sharing your precious time and family time to chat with me at the Analytic Show podcast. Now I'm going to get started. From my research, I have found that you hold the IP in India, the first parallel computer and image processing system. That is crazy. You built that quite early in your career when you were working for RSRO. Like, is I think it's an Indian space research organization. I would love to know a bit more about those early days of your career as a scientist is in India, and I think it was also the time of global information revolution was unfolding. How exciting was the time, and how have those early challenges helped you in the later stage of your career? Oh yeah, Jason. I mean, I cannot even begin to say how exciting and how fortunate I am to be able to work for Indian Space Research Organization. Like as a young, fresh engineer right out of college, I worked there. So I would say, like being able to work on. So if I dumb it down, right? So you, I used to work in the image processing for satellite data. So you are capturing all this satellite data that is coming and how do you make sense of those? And that satellite was primarily I worked on for remote sensing, whether for vegetation or even something for weather forecasting, right? Now, what was exciting, you talked about why did we have to have IP in doing a parallel processing of the data? Because that data, you're thinking about like, you know, large volume. Back in the days, we did not talk about big data, but the volume, variety, veracity, I mean, everything was there, right? And we did not have the compute that today we have like democratizing high performance computing today, we didn't have that, right? So what that meant is we needed to do a large of algorithms and doing an efficient way to break it down. So we actually was fortunate, like in India, actually, you know, Center for Development of Advanced Computing in Pune, developed parallel processing. So one of the challenges back then was, even though compute probably was getting faster, but communication was not. So you can break down a you know, data set into multiple chunks, but and you can process in parallel, but then how do you put them back together was a challenge. So then UK actually in Moss came up with this chip called a transistor and a computer on a chip like called transputer. And using that transputer, then we built this parallel machine. And I basically was one of them to work really on image processing algorithms in an SIMD, MIMD in parallel computer. And in parallel to that, because we didn't have that much, you know, access to the you know, compute and there was a ban of US to India back then. So we also developed actually in-house. So we had, I was very fortunate to work with really smart people, like people much smarter than me. And so we developed actually both the software and the hardware, like almost like a hyper-converged infrastructure to build workstations that would process, which was like ISRO Vision was one of the patented technology where both software and hardware we assembled within our, within in the company, right? So I think talking about everything I learned there, I think as a personal front, like knowledge makes you humble. No matter what you, the more you know, the more humble you become. That was, I think, my foundation of working with people. And the other side is, how do you really build good software? How do you build resilient software? Like how do you like, no matter how many simulations you do, when it is up in the air, you have very little correction you can do, right? So a combination of really, I think who I am today from an engineer, software architect is I think my foundation really started back in the days in Israel. 
I suspect that it also helps you to be more conscious and utilize whatever you can get with that whole idea of the parallel processing system. Like you say, back in the days, I, I do remember in the uh, when I tried to build parallel processing into the, the program that I was building, it's more about utilizing whatever the power that we have got instead of this unlimited power that we have got in the company. Oh, yeah. There was no such thing as elastic. <laughs> there is finite amount of memory, like 64 MB or whatever, and you have the 16 gigabit leaks or whatever you have, you have to do in that, right? Exactly. Exactly. I love that. I would love to read that article on the IP one day. Now, moving on, what are the major changes that you have found most important and interesting in the tech industry since the day of working at the RSL to today? <laughs> I think it is change, yes and no. I think the fundamental, like fundamental of computer science, you know, that's why I say it is classic computer science, right? That hasn't changed. If you think about the data pipeline, right, from acquiring the data to different stages and making sense, hasn't, I'm saying in a way that changed that. But I think the means to the getting to the end, right, has really become, right? I think that what has been exciting is back, you know, we used to have to have knowledge around infrastructure, along our domain, and making also being a good software engineer, right? So all of the above you have to combine. But I think Fast forward, because of the advances in every layer, today software engineers don't even have to worry about infrastructure because it is just at the click of a button, you can elasticity you can get, right? So I think exciting has been that, so now if you're a physics specialist or a mathematician, or you can actually zoom in and do your job really well because you have the ecosystem support and that's just enormously you know, increasing, right? So whether it is, and the other thing is with the internet, it is everybody has the same, almost the access to the same resource. I mean, it wouldn't be possible without technology for you and I you know, across the globe to be on the same Zoom call and having this interactive communication, right? So I think that every front, like the technology communication, the computer, the fundamentals of computer science, I think each stream has developed so much and that's just has made a lot of art of possible now. I agree. I think the advance of the technology has certainly enabled people. I think it's also making specialization more and more. That's one thing. But also, it has enabled to a lot more people to be able to do things without having to know everything like you described earlier. I suppose what it also got me thinking from time to time, though, is that to some extent, I personally appreciate the understanding of everything. doesn't have to be the expert, but how they come together because it helped me to design the software better. However, as a result of the change of the technology, people no longer have to do that. How do you think that is going to change the way that how they see and build, build software then? Yeah, that's a great point because I think I have seen many young engineers that come out. They think that A is easy, right? There is no, like, you can just find anything on the Google. It Like, Google, I think, has spoiled, <laughs> you know, hunger for learning a lot because you can just Google and find it. I think 
But I think it is also important, right? So what's changing? Because you need that access because democratizing, I think every citizen developer, everybody is a developer, everybody is a technologist, everyone needs access to the data and technology, right? So in today's day and age, I think having that democratization is extremely important. And I think that's why, like, yes, you need to know your fundamentals. So I would still think that they should teach that in the school and somebody has to still do those basics, like not an expert, as you said. But I think anybody like, you know, making it for like, and especially with low code, low code coming along, like if you're uh, like any profession, they should be able to build software because every industry is disrupted and being a software company now, right? So I think it is important, like if you're with a transportation, whether like everybody, like if they don't have that access, I think we will go back. So I think in one way it is must and which is why probably it is happening. The other side is it might be a little sad because I'm not sure this whether this will come back because sometime like this research and development still has to continue, right? Because if we would need more power, we would need more superpower computers, we would still need that, right? And if we don't have some people that are still interested in tomorrow's generation, I think we'll be, because we are already short of mainframe people, right? But our, our pension and everything in the still running on mainframe, right? So I think that balance still has to be there. But I think what would be important is how do you bring the balance with the people still understanding good enough and who can go deep versus maybe 70% of the people still do not need to know deep, but they know how to use it, how to be a user versus how to be a you know system specialist. Putting together uh, what you have just said, it reminded me of one of the thinking that I have is about the disruption. I think we are going to see the probably the third wave or the fourth wave of the disruption in the software and technology. And what I mean by that is like you were just saying that a lot of things are still running in mainframe or window desktop. So perhaps a lot of industry are already powered by the software, but they were powered and they are still powered by the mainframe or the desktop software. We are going to see a lot of changes where a lot of those things are going to be migrated out into the web technology, into the cloud, into the mobile because that is the environment that we are having all the processing power, but equally the generation who know how to code COBOL is disappearing. And, and there is no choice but have to move in there. Do you think you are seeing that in the state considering what you are seeing over the numbers of the decades? Yes, 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 absolutely. Although I would say, it is it moving as fast as you would need to? Probably not, right? But I believe some of the, like the last year pandemic, I mean, what it taught for <laughs> innovation and pace and speed, I don't think anything has taught. I think, so necessity is the mother of invention, everybody says so. I think that probably is forcing, but yeah, that's happening. That's definitely happening. In my life, like when I used to work like Arrow Electronics, a distributor supply chain company, we used to run on the mainframe, but we started extending that, projecting to make it relevant, right? So I never worked on mainframe, but I integrated, but then we swapped from mainframe to going into Oracle ERP or whatever other transactional system, right? Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, it works. I mean, that thing works. So that's why IBM is still relevant on computer associates. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is true. Now, moving on to the what you do, I want to talk a little bit more about the role you as a chief enterprise architect. 
for the platform and architecture at Intuit is one of the company I have a lot of admiration and uh, would love to hear about your works at Intuit. Sure. So Intuit is a fintech company and I think a 38-year-old company and before even fintech was a thing, Intuit has been a technology company, right? So I have been with Intuit uh, less than a year, like, you know, about nine months right now, like nine and a half months. And I, what my role as a chief enterprise architect, so if I unpack that, what does it mean? So before I say even like, you know, what I do, so Intuit has been uh, like 38 years. So 38 years back, you didn't have like the cloud and the platform thing. So it has gone through the evolution of like DOS product to Windows, to the web, to the mobile, and now is the generation of the platform, right? And so as an architect, my role is how do we really become like successful as a platform company? So I am part of like our central team, which we call like a platform acceleration group. So think about us, my existence is to make sure that to enable rest of the company to move fast, and move with in a way that you have a you do with everything in a in a standard way. You have a you are compliant and everything is in concert with what the business strategy is. So as a part of the chief enterprise architect, I was like, what does it mean? So I connect basically from the business strategy, like you know, what does it mean? Intuit's mission is to becoming like powering prosperity around the world. And what does the strategy mean? Break down into what we call like capabilities, right? Every company and then organize them in a way so that everything the Intuit does as a company, whether like the Intuit products like your QuickBooks, TurboTax, or what our employees uses or what you need in order to run the business, everything is represented in this framework which is what I and my team is responsible for as the architect. So what are those capabilities? Is this the capability you should be building? How do you organize them? Is this something defining like, you know, if you want to go fast, is this something you should be building? Or is this something you should be acquiring? Is this something you should be partnering? And then connecting those so and making, giving them the tools and technology so that whether you are a business person or a product manager, or you are an engineer, you can actually interact with this. So making it consumable for the persona based on what they're trying to do within this. So it involves your strategy to architecture, to execution, the technology, the framework, and the tools. So every day I live and breathe in, how can I build something? I think about like, build like Lego blocks, right? Each of these building blocks, and how can you start assembling them so that this whole thing can come together? Which are the pieces? Where do they sit? How do they communicate? How do they connect? So that's kind of my role and my team's role within Intuit. One thing that I want to dive a little bit deeper into that role and also what Intuit does is as a company, Intuit have multiple products and each of those products is also slightly distinctively different to each other. As a platform, as you use the word quite significantly and a chief enterprise architect, my question for you is how do you infuse the culture and the idea where there are things where you could actually build and then get reused again and again across multiple products, even though they may be slightly different. Do you think that is important and do you think that is possible within the context of Intuit? Oh, 100%. Have we been doing that all the time? No, then I wouldn't be here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
but hundred percent. So if you break it down, right? I mean, what are the common things? Like you said, like we have different products. How do you become like you know? If you're a customer of Intuit, do you want to interact with Intuit like in a way that we know Jason by like once you come in, regardless of what product we use, we should be able to identify Jason is Jason, right? As you move from whether you are doing your bookkeeping or you are doing tax or you are doing commerce. How can we seamlessly translate you, right? So if we, just as an experience for the, so everything we do is customer back, right? If we can't deal with that unified customer experience and experience doesn't mean just a front end, but the whole experience, how you interact, which means we need to have an identity, like common things, like how do we identify JSON across the product? So identity as a common, how do we, we have a mission of that you don't have to enter data multiple times. So like once you tell me, JSON logs in with whatever your identifier, I should be able to connect you to everything seamlessly. That means that ability to interchange, like, you know, integrate your data across. So we have common capabilities. What we built is how do you connect these things with any input, any output? So like those are kind of what we call like core services, your identity, your integrate, and then notification, like the technical common components that how do you, that's not only for using, but also like for speed and velocity, right? Because now you don't have to worry about and seamlessly. But then a higher order of, and this is like table stakes to me, like you have to. But now how do you go one level above, right? And that's why I think architecture comes into play in a platform as you move kind of as a layer cake up the stack, if we can still start to build like common building blocks, which can be now exposed to depending on what the customer is trying to do and what application. For example, if we build building blocks like beyond identity and uh, this thing, like money movement, or how you do, say, a checkout. So in the commerce, if a checkout as a flow, now in the platform, I can use the checkout as a building block and I can connect to uh, in a, maybe our internal marketplace, or I can connect to, say, externally to Shopify, AWS, or whatever channels to our partners. Or I can even give it this as that building block to say maybe our, our small medium consumers or a small medium businesses, maybe they are building their products, right? So how do we get that reuse is really get out of a mindset of a vertical products building versus think about that I'm building actually some set of capabilities that fulfills a specific customer value, right? So driving from there, we are building these building blocks. And that's why part of what I'm driving is we call this like a solution architecture. So you build capability and then start building these reusable solutions. And on top of that, what does platform mean really that you build everything as a service, right? So if you look at AWS or any successful platform company, the way is you go there and you should be able to do self-service. You have a service and you're an a la carte, like I can pick and choose what we want. So that's actually really driving the reu- why we need to have reusable modules, why and then to your point, like there is a slight difference, right? So that's where again architecture come in. How do you build design like enough variability and configurability so that I can extend? I want a little bit variation. I don't have to duplicate, but I can extend this and within the context of my product. I love it. And I think to take that one step further is that this reusable blog. From the way that, from my experience of building these reusable block is not only they have to be, have that sort of flexibility, but even better is that the people who are using the reusable block doesn't even have to know what is yeah. in yeah, exactly. the All they have to know is how do they pass the variable or the value in and what comes out. 
that is probably the beauty of that. Exactly. I don't care like what these five things that need to be underlying and whether how we are connecting, whether doing eventing, synchronous messaging, whatever. I have a one thing and and that then becomes really reusable, not only within the company. Now I can, we can like ecosystem is important. You know, today is like an embedded fintech, right? I mean, everybody needs to talk to and our mission with powering prosperity, right? So we want to be like single one stop, like for small businesses. Like they don't want to go like, okay, I do bookkeeping here. I go somewhere else, do tax. Oh, I do now commerce. I get another place, do payroll. Now I get paid somewhere else, right? How do we make it easy? And if we don't think about reusable, like almost plug and play, we also do a lot of acquisitions, Jason. How would you, I mean, we just did a $12 billion MailChimp. How do you make these things work in a seamless way if we don't focus on those building blocks? And how do you get the platform, one product talking to each other to almost a seamless experience in such a way that you don't have to think about it or the customer don't have to think about it. <laughs> exactly. And that's where other technologies come in. Like I hate to use the word ML AI, but fundamentally it is what it is. <laughs> so a lot of data ML AI will understand, like help us making all these things put together, right? With data at the center in the platform. And that's why I love doing what I do, like enterprise architecture data blended. And I think the perfect time and perfect place for Intuit to really take advantage of that. I love this topic so much and I want to pick your head on this idea of doing what we have just described, i.e. building all of these rebu- uh, reusable building blocks, etc., etc., and platforms such a thing, but building that at the company where they are not a technology company. It's easy for Google, it's easy for Intuit to think about this thing because fundamentally the core of it was always have this software engineer or tech company mindset. So it's easy for them to think. But if you were to talk to a bank, you were to talk to a transportation company, they were not born as a tech company, right? as much as they use a lot of tech and then a lot of tech people. But then still, the fundamental, that paradigm shift, how do you help to make that happen in this sort of industry or companies to have that mindset then? I think from the business perspective, if we think about like just taking say whether it is Walmart, like yeah, Walmart is a high tech company, but if it is whether Walmart or even a transportation like Nicola, as a say, we were talking to their CTO the other day, like hydrogen battery living truck company, right? I think the where it is it resonates is if we try and go back to the business model and the question. So whether if it is a supply chain, like how are you going to know where is your inventory, right? Where are you shipping from? Like, you know, do you know your pricing? Like in order to do all this, what is it that you need? So if you have like a millions of customers and your billions of trucks that you're operating on, is there one place that you can go and manage, right? I think understanding, like when I used to work for a like supply chain, I'm saying I used to work for Aero Electronics, one of the largest electronic distributor, right? And we didn't make anything, but we were, we were the huge technology company. But every question we answered was with the business in, uh, outcome, what are you trying to do? And that actually translates into then, is there something that can help me in doing it, right? But I think where it comes to get better is like, I think the package software, right? I mean, whether the cloud companies, whether AWS GCP is trying to build those verticals, technology companies have a lot to offer to those non-technology companies because to offering more embedded vertical solutions for them 
and applying in a way that they wrote, it is all drag and drop as much as possible because they cannot afford to have Silicon Valley engineers for like, you know, 250K salary, right? Probably because low margin business and whatnot. So making it easy, making it consumable and making those package solutions. And I think that has been, like if we think about Oracle ERP, SAP ERP, that's how it kind of started to solve for manufacturing, right? Or solve for healthcare. So I think that needs to happen more. Another mindset, I think we it just happens. Again, I believe in that necessity is really mother of invention. If we think about how we got vaccine, did anybody, do you think everybody was thinking about that? Hey, we need high performance computing. We need AI, ML to solve this. If we didn't get this COVID as much as we had it, I think that forced it. And I know you talked to the other day, like to Johnson & Johnson, right? I mean, if, I mean, we can talk all day long, like, you know, that actually forced them to rethink, how can we do something better? I think that like those necessities are driving people to really change their mindset because there is no other way. Either you get on the bus or get off the bus, right? I mean, you have to adapt the embrace or you become extinct, right? But I think another thing could be today's generation, like the kids that are born today, they're already born with, and the consumerization of gadgets. I mean, I think that's, again, is something how much power we are getting in the phone, how many things you can do from WhatsApp, how many things you can do from like a Facebook messenger, which is a common man everybody uses. I think those companies also have a huge role to play. So I think the cloud, the technology company, the social media, like, like the they have a huge role to play and influence them, right? Absolutely. Now, moving back to Intuit, how does Intuit use AI and uh, emerging tech to solve the biggest financial challenges for your approximately 100 million customers. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to see what you're doing. And if you think about like, you know, just financial challenge, if you say, right, I mean, one of the, especially with the pandemic, we saw small businesses just getting paid is hard. And even if so, if you... So we have, say, for example, QuickBooks, right, where you can do your bookkeeping and your finance. Now you can issue an invoice, you can get some money. But once you do an invoice, can you have to wait for when actually you are going to get paid, right? So what Intuit does is like enable, as an example, with AI, knowing credit history, like we can do a credit health of customers, right? And we can help in actually issuing, we do loans. We do, like you can get paid right now, even though your pay actually might come later. So we are building this building capabilities with just by knowing more about the customer, knowing their behavior, what they are doing. There's just one way of helping them with the finance. Another example, like suppose with tax, one of the most common mistakes most of the customers make is entering their bank account number. And imagine when you are filing taxes, if your bank account number is wrong, that means you are not getting paid. So we have implemented ML algorithms to kind of detect and with, I think last year, like about 50% of corrections, which resulted in, I think about 500 million of somebody getting refund on time, right? So I think just by building some of this is like from a, like, how do you get paid? Not only you get paid, how do you pay, do payroll? Like how do you pay your employees? How do you do your cash movement? And then how do you also connect? So we connect with like, say other banks and we can pull your statement and we can organize those financial statements into categorization through ML. And then we can also do suggestion. And of course, with ethics and consent that, hey, there may be a recommendation. Maybe you can move things around. Here is how you can put your balance, right? So at the heart of all this is like the data that we're capturing, 
how we are tagging them, how we are classifying them, and always churning. So we deploy ML algorithm in a models like pretty much every day in and out, right? And some of the other areas like risk and fraud, we reduce customers. We have algorithms to detect risk and fraud. So that helps with the customer to understand like what their exposure is. Would you say to some extent is also about deploying those ML algorithm or using the AI to help with the expert advice to customer? What are the trends that we are seeing to help connecting the customer in that sense then? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, like when we talk about the customer, right? Customer connect, uh, like when customer calls, like whether you are trying to do, like, for example, I'm not a finance expert, right? Well, if I have a business, I would need some advice. So when we call, we get a lot of calls and then we connect to experts. So that actually a couple of ways. One is from our experts can tell you, they will already through our, because we have a lot of know about the customer. So the, by the time the expert talks to you, expert will know about your financial health, your pattern and what you're right, and direct you to the right kind of investment, like in the right way of model, you know, managing your finance. Or if it was an, you know, tax, you are trying to do your taxes, the expert helps in assigning, okay, here is how probably you should do your deductions, right? That maybe you travel a lot from New York to Boston or around the world and your tax is complicated. So expert is helping. The other side it is helping is, I think, is an efficiency gain is, suppose you are an expert and I just called you, we have all this conversation. Think about after the conversation, you have to capture some notes and send it away. You probably will spend like, you know, just a you know, couple of small summary. You cannot capture probably my 30 minutes conversation into a that. So we are applied, we applied there our ML algorithms to trans, like not only do the transcription, but also create the summary, summary for, and that's actually have been extremely helpful for as an efficiency gain. And not only efficiency, now you have real correct information that what the information was. And then you can feed that to subsequent, right? Once you have that dialogue that is captured, now you can use that data once it is digitized for your subsequent actions and recommendations and movement. The Intuit fundamentally is a fintech company, especially with the all of those accounting and uh, payment stuff like that. I'm curious to know how... Intuit is adopting and applying ML or this algorithm to for the customer who are using the products from Intuit. And how what do you guys do from the aspect of payment in that area? Yeah, so from a machine learning, as I mentioned, right, whether doing the transcript from an expert advice, right, or correcting your bank account number as simple as that, you know, applying machine learning over there. Or we have a lot of chatbots like or automation built in to ensure that as the data that the customers are entering, we are helping with understanding. We are helping with your intent, like because we understand that as the customer is clicking through, we through our ML algorithms and models, understanding what's your intent could be. Is it something what you are trying to do and help you with the guided, right? And then taking that forward with for what you talked about the payment engine side, right? So we do support like multiple payments today and more and more, you know, digital payment everybody wants. And then with the rise of crypto and like Bitcoins, we actually have started supporting crypto too. And especially during the pandemic this year, we have seen a lot of demand for crypto. And I think 
This is only going to increase and over the coming years as this gets even more popular, right? So I think digital currency and we supporting whatever is in the, like whatever customer wants. And But the way in the architecture wise, we are able to support very easily is because we build those like as a plug and play, almost like extendable. So you almost like an adapter. So if you have a new model without changing the main flow, main engine, you can start adding those additional payment supports and continue the customer's journey, right? That's interesting. I would love to see that cryptocurrency in the internet one day. Now, we talk a lot about the reusable block. My question for you then is, how do you enforce the practice at Intuit to say, hey, before you go on and build anything, have you thought about how do we make it reusable? And have you thought about how to make it easy to be reusable? That I think is not something that easy to build. Oh, sorry, it's easy to build, but it's not easy to, to sort of like infuse that sort of culture across the entire board of the engineer to always think about what is the next step that we can use of it. Because it's easy to solve a problem and write some code, but it's not a level to package it and reuse, make it reusable. Yeah, and I wish there was any formula to say, like, you do two plus two equals four. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like not just into it, every company is, right? Correct. How Correct. do you start getting into that DNA, right? So I think that's where, I think the one is like ground up or you can do you know, top down, right? I think thou shall do or shall not do kind of some of the tenants. So what I do as an architecture, lead of enterprise architecture is, First of all, build those guardrails, right? So you don't put like, you know, don't say these are gates that you cannot, but you help like guardrails. So explaining and articulating the value of, if you do this way, what's in it for you? So a lot of kind of show and tell and communication, but while doing that also, over the years I have learned is you have to treat architecture as code. So what does that mean? to be building reusable, that means, okay, and in order for consistency for somebody to be able to use your capability or the component, we define like, you know, what we call like, a, you know, like AWS and GCP, we call it well-architected framework. So think about these are the pillars you need to build and also having a self-assessment and scoring so that as somebody is doing the architecture, right? So we have this capability thing, somebody has to say, hey, have you thought about this? Is there a capability already existing or not? And if not, then you're building. But if you're building, here is the checklist almost like they go through the checklist as you are building. And if you want to try it out, here is like you download a sample framework that you have a reference architecture and building blocks and just plug it in your component. So now you have the whole thing, right? Now you have a speed and we are all about speed, right? So I think all you need is uh, like one or two of those in the way I do it in each of the BUs or something to start to create that movement by picking your one or two of those and the most difficult people that are usually the smartest and but they want to build everything, pull them aside, help them to the, hey, you build something, let's work together now. And also a little bit of carrot and giving them some incentive of if you build this, here is what you is what is in it for you, not only just but maybe, I mean, in my past, Jason, when I used to be integration architect and doing service-oriented architecture, we used to actually give away 
whether it is some credits or awards or even calling out, giving a present call out in the city or all hands. Sometimes all you have to have that incentive that for the right behavior, if you do, how yes. does it? And then how do you do checks and balances? You said like, how do you know that somebody is doing it? Other side is having metrics, right? You give guardrails, say this is what you should do, but also like check, you know, trust, but verify. So we we create metrics dashboard that will show you will, you know, measure like the architecture posture and have a heat map to show, are you moving that, you know, doing the right things or not? And I think the moment you try to act on something that starts to show that the work you are doing actually is getting a you know golden star or it is getting a, you know whatever i think that changes the behavior so i've given you a long answer because there is no one size fits all but i think what we as an architecture community needs to do is create those building blocks create architecture as much as, get out of the ivory tower don't draw boxes all day long get real create things that are reusable create things people are that will benefit engineers and also make it fine. In many a time, I think people just don't do because they want to, but because they don't know, they don't know where to find. So make information accessible and available. That's what minimum you can do. So somebody can quickly find and search. They can try it out and then build it, right? I agree. Now, one question that it pops up a lot in my mind as we were speaking about this is that enterprise architecture versus data science. Now, on the surface, it may sound like it's two distinct profession and two distinct category. How do you explain to someone that they need and the necessity of having the enterprise architecture in the data science project? Yeah, that's a good question, Jess. So data science as a discipline like, yeah, I mean, if we, again, break it down, what do you really need in that, right? So the first thing you need is in order to do anything is access to data and access to clean data, which means you need a this whole infrastructure and pipeline to be able to. And now when we say clean data, what defines that? Is it a, and then you get into your, like the system of record or it your what is the, how do you define, what are the attributions you need? I think that then starts to get into the fundamentals of data architecture, which is gets you back to, when you talk about enterprise architecture, data, like the different pillars of the enterprise architecture, data and information architecture is one of the core things, right? So that's how we like blend, like, yes, you could have data scientists, which could write algorithms all day long, but what are you writing it on? What are you testing with on? And your algorithm is as good as as good as the data as it is that you are running, right? So we that's how we blend it into it. For example, yes, we have data team. Yes, we have data scientists because you need domain expertise, right? You can't be an ivory tower central team thinking that okay, I'm doing data science, but the linkage is in the federated model. So you have enterprise architecture, you have data architecture. And then you have, you know, specialists that are in the domain that understand whether it is money, whether it is tax, whether it is billing, right? But we provide. So we're kind of complementary, right? Having an architecture infrastructure that can give you, and then you can sit on that, almost like an, I would say like an application, like if I was building application and I still need uh, where my infrastructure, where am I writing this, right? So I think about like data science kind of an user of, the architecture that we produce as a part of the enterprise architecture. So whether you are one is building a software or doing data science, 
in the world that we live in today, we are also starting to championing, especially in the software area and data area, we're starting to champion more and more agile and fast-paced development environment. And I think the enterprise architecture equally play a very good role of it. And where you went from whiteboard to pilot in three months, but there has got to be some balance between using the external tools and the software versus developing the internal tools. What, what is your approach to this problem to say, how can we quickly get it delivered versus thought it through and then at the same time using the external internal tools to aid with this process? Yeah, so we basically, you know, as a part of the architecture, you know, we have a huge responsibility to say, what's your code versus context, right? And where do you want to invest? Is it really your competitive differentiator or is it something commodity, right? And what's your DNA? Like, for example, for Intuit, is it our, our DNA is data and fintech? Am I going to give it to anyone? No, that's what we would be building, right? But there are tools that we will be using that's not, you know, that's commodity, right? Why should we be building? And that's not our DNA either. Like, say, for example, building fundamental infrastructure, we would be, I mean, right? But so based on that, and then rapid prototyping, you mentioned about getting my like whiteboard to pilot. In that case, so a couple of areas, right? How would you do that? One is don't boil the ocean from a problem statement. What is the slice of the business value? You want to prove it out. What's your goal? That's so that you can have minimum viable product, right? Then secondly is what part of this truly have to do custom development? So I'll take an example of suppose when I did at Zora, like building my data platform, taking like in a concept to you know three months was for marketing. For example, marketing efficacy of campaign management we did not know. So we are we have money, we are spending. Do we know is it actually con- doing the what the conversion rate is? Is it taking that this thing to a, are we getting a sales? So in order to do that, really infrastructure wise, there it is a solved problem. How you get data in? How do you build a data lake and how do, but what is code is how do you apply to the business problem for the marketing domain, for example, that I'm solving for. So for that, very narrow use cases, figure out what are the three to five use data sources, how do I bring that in, and only write code when you need to, rest you leverage the tools that are out there and build that, right? So that's how my approach is always, obviously cost comes into a play, but that is one of the factor, but I think I start with first, is it a core or a con- context? And if it is a core or, you know, if it is a context, straight away is not something, then also look into open source versus are you going to pay for it, right? So, and then all these are blended into your technology selection principles, which again, something that we define that helps build by criteria. And like right now also I'm doing an unified planning software. I mean, I'm driving that with a bunch of, you know, decision filters. But our principles are our guardrails, right? Principles and the nostra that tell us, is this something we should be doing or not? So I'm of all of the opinion, like do not waste your, engineering resources are precious, right? Put where you really need a differentiator, otherwise just get out of it. And the other is automate, right? You do not want to do you know, work, automate the heck of it. I mean, if any task I have to do twice, I'll figure it out a way that I do it once and then I cannot, you can rip it, rinse and go. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I suppose the next question I have for you is, what do you think are the most crucial aspects that the business should keep in mind whilst embarking on such a fast-paced 
data platform development project with agile practice. Yeah. So I think to me, the number one is really focus on a very narrow use case that you can see the real benefit. So don't try to boil the ocean. Never try to do a big bang, even though it might be very enticing, but find really a business value use case that you can very easily actually measure the ROI, right? And start building your iterative platform. So not only agile delivery, but also if you need to build the infrastructure, you need to build the platform and the tooling, start in an iterative way. And be very, very deliberate about what you're not going to do. So scope creep will come as soon as the people start to see. So having that deliberation about what it is not is very important. Secondly, get your data quality people ready. Like business has to, because the moment you start making data visible in any platform, things you will see like what this doesn't match, that doesn't match. So knowing like who are the data stewards Whose throat is to be like on his on the line for owning which type of data and making that data mastery or data stewardship and data cleansing a very integral part. Otherwise, data projects will always fail, right? And I think you know, never drive it only from an. I mean, you talked about business readiness. There is an IT readiness or te- technical team readiness, but never make it only a technical project, right? Data projects never can be only about just uh, technical people. Bring your business along. And self-service. The third thing I would say, like, do not depend, like, hey, I have an army of people that I'll ask a question they are going to answer. Ask definitely for how am I going to answer self-serve so that you can refine your project. So those are the th- three things. Really being deliberate able to scope and business value, do in an iterative way, have your quality, and then do in a self-serve way so that business, you can answer, you do not depend, like as business users, depend on three other engineers to say, can you help me in answering this? What's my revenue number? In the answer that you just provided, you use the word of Big Bang. And I want to dwell a little bit more about that because it resonated me with a lot on that. I think it's always appealing for whether it's the business team or the IT team wanting to start the project and start in a big bang approach because it will look attractive on resume. It will look attractive on the profile. But most of the time, starting the project in a big bang approach would almost always attract too much attention and also get too many stakeholders involved as a result of that a lot of people and a lot of stakeholders are going to try to pull the, the project into all different directions. Because of that, it would also make it so much harder to deliver the project and make sure that it is success. How do you infuse that mindset that Big Bang is great? I understand that. But these equally are also the challenges when you want to go Big Bang but let's try to build a small team and make it as secret as possible and try to deliver and prove the value first before we make it something really, really big that is worthwhile doing. Yeah. So I think it depends on the culture of the company, of course, like how how much patience somebody has in order to like, again, asking those questions, like who is actually ultimately going to be, is it your CEO, CFO, and how much runway do you have in order to really wait for seeing the result? And is your business going to stay static within those? So what assumptions today are you making 
in order to, so when you talk about a big bank project, more likely than not, it is not a three months, six months gig, right? It is probably longer. So, so ask those questions to say, do you expect no changes within this? Do you expect your like any like financial acquisition or happening? Or is it like, what are the things that are going to be, and can you actually, Mr. or Mrs. like wait for this like a number of years to get the value? Or would you rather, do you want to see something more sooner? And here is the, again, I think options, right? Here is one option and here is your other option that you can have. Yes, you can still have the stakeholder. You have as long as just make sure that you have a North Star alignment, but clearly articulating the problem, not problems, the, the challenges that you have to constantly work. I have seen like to get to there versus like even I have done ERP multiple year projects years back, right? But we have always done like, okay, let's go with the one of the business unit. Let's go Asia back first. Let's do Europe, then we North America. Because if you want globally, Go as far. It'll be ten years project or five years project. Is that an appetite do you have? No. So here are the two options. Then so I have always seen that clearly articulating. There should be more than one choice, and then you pick basically. And if you then make an informed decision that yes, no, we have the appetite to go big or go home, and we do big bang. Then let's just put all your eggs in that basket and do it right. So I think there is a place for that when you have a very clear idea about what you want to achieve and you can sustain that two years or n number of years of no touch and go sometimes it might be it might be like you just have no other choice and you have to do it you probably do it but i think having that clarity even then i think for big bang i would still say let's try out in a smaller scope first and then you can do a big bang so that you can iron out what are the challenges that you will get into right because things will go wrong Things bug will appear when it is least expected, and you would have to figure that out. So I would say having that negotiation, yes, we'll do big bang, but maybe we let's iron out corner cases and maybe let's do in a small scope and then we go big bang. Thank you for sharing your thought on that topic. And uh, to conclude this podcast interview, I want to ask your advice for the younger professional. So from an engineer working at ISRO, to a chief enterprise architect at Intuit, it has quite been a journey. So my question for you is, what is the most important piece of advice that you would give to the young professional and start working at it with emerging technology to get on to the career direction that they want to have? So my advice always to any young engineer is just, there is no shortcut to learning and there is no shortcut to like, you know, the work that you do, and especially at the young age. And no matter whichever job you get into, don't get attracted by, okay, I have to work for this brand name companies. Every job, there is something to learn. So pay attention to what you are doing and any job, whether you're working in library or like, or you're working in the rocket science or in a, like wherever you are, Watch, observe, and pay attention and be really disciplined. Like learn some basic ABC about like discipline. Like show up on time, show up as professional, do everything with your utmost utter discipline. And also like learn from others, whatever you are doing, not only your job, but see how to work with others. I think I would say many a times, especially in digital age today, everybody burning, like we get so attached to the, just living in our digital world. We forget about the social and working with people. 
But I think the first job is very important to also how to work with the team, how to learn empathy. Empathy is very important. And how do you be there? And collectively, you, you do your work. You have to be contributing. But remember, you only succeed with the team. So be a team player. And I think just learn and keep reading and keep learning and do not underestimate any work. That's like my real advice is. I agree. Now, my final two questions. The first one is, what is your most important first principle? I don't know, most important or what, but I would say I believe that every complex thing can be broken down into simpler bite-sized chunks. If something seems too complicated, too complex, that means we're not thinking right. So go back and start breaking it down. And that's what has been my principle all my life. That is a good one. Last one, what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? I think a couple of books, I would say like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, you know, by Mark Manson. <laughs> I read that one. I love it. Yes. I know it's really important because we are especially coming from the society from India, like you just care for, I mean, I still care for everyone, but you have to figure it out what not to and what are the things to matter. And I think the other side, The Art of Impossible, really focusing on your strengths. And that's actually another advice for them. Do not worry too much about what you are not good at and who is good at what. We are all equally good. So focus on what your strengths are and you will be always successful. So I think some of this, don't try to please everyone. Don't try to do everything. I think it would have been good advice. But I these days I learned, especially with like what not to do and focusing on what you are good at. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, again, for all of those Go nuggets about the enterprise architecture. I love so much about it. And I think a lot of people are going to benefit how to apply this in the context of the data science and data analytics. Once again, thank you so much, Gita. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.